calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book One The Voyage South Chapter Four In which the Molly sails south and her crew makes a horrid discovery. Astrea stood in the stern of the Molly, sketching the outline of the cliffs he could see off the starboard bow. On his left, Roaring Jack held the tiller in one fist, his blue eyes roving up to check the set of his sails, then out to starboard, where rocks tossed up spray between his boat and the land, and then ahead to shape his coasting course. It was late in the day, and Roaring Jack was sailing the molly close to the shore in search of an anchorage for the night. In the leather bag at Astrea's feet was a series of sketches that recorded the other cliffs, bluffs, bays, islands, and points they had been skirting during the days of their voyage south. He finished his drawing of the rocky fang around which they were sailing, stowed the sheet of birch bark with the others, and took a fresh sheet on which to record the headland once more viewed astern as the molly plunged onward under light but steady northwesterly winds. Roaring Jack insisted on an over-the-stern view, so that they would know what to look for on their return journey. However, Astrea was concerned that his materials would soon be exhausted. Back at the village, Skarm had prepared what seemed an endless supply of bark and enough charcoal, ink, and quill pens to last any voyage, but as he used his materials day after day, Astrea was not so sure. Each evening they found a bay or inlet where they could anchor or beach the molly. Then Astrea would ink the charcoal sketches, while Roaring Jack decided on the wording of notes to guide them back on their return journey. The skipper and Astrea worked by lantern light in the cockpit under a sail rigged as an awning over the boom, while Skarm, Yan, and Red Ian clustered around a candle in the cabin. Recently, when they finally blew out the lights and Astrea looked up into the heavens, he saw new stars to the south. Throughout the days Astrea was so busy sketching that after he had done his share of getting the molly under way each morning, he had little time to think of anything but the continuous job of recording the shoreline. Occasionally he wondered if Roaring Jack knew where he was taking them so far from the village. From time to time, as he sketched, his mother's face crossed his mind's eye, her hair blowing out to one side, a few strands streaking her cheeks, the way he had so often seen her when they had gone for walks along the high paths above the village. 
These moments were more than mere daydreams, and quite unlike homesickness. Whenever they occurred, he felt sure that Alanna was aware of him, even though reason told him it was impossible. Roaring Jack treated Astraea as a full-grown man, as did Skarm and Red Ian. Astraea noticed that the young giant, who usually frowned at people in the village, wore a face settled into a permanent grin now that they were at sea. On the other hand, Jan scowled at Astraea when the other men were not watching. Unused to the boat's lively action on the open sea, the red-haired youth had spent most of his first two days hanging head downwards over the side, retching back everything Roaring Jack insisted that he eat. Even now, when the worst of his seasickness had passed, he still winced when the molly punched her bow through the top of a wave and smacked up spray to sluice down her foredeck as she swayed and swung, her mast reeling dizzily overhead. At the start of the voyage, Astraea's stomach had lurched whenever he was caught off balance by the molly's dance among the waves. The first time they passed within a stone's throw of huge rocks lurking below the roiling water, he had swallowed hard not to throw up onto the sketch in his hands. But Roaring Jack's seamanship gave him a confidence that was stronger than nausea. At first, Astraea had barely been able to stand braced against the cockpit combing, and his sketches were often smudged and uneven. But now he worked quickly and accurately, sketching as easily as on dry land. Yan clung unhappily to the cockpit edge, looking gloomily at the waves. "'Watch the horizon, Yan, and you'll feel better,' said Astraea. "'Get knotted,' Yan muttered through clenched teeth. "'You think that there's an island?' Roaring Jack demanded. Astraea glanced at his sketch, compared it once more with the shoreline, and decided. "'Looks like it, Skipper,' he said. Something like a growl came from Yan as he frowned at Astraea. A bellowed order from Roaring Jack brought Skarm and Red Ian up from the cabin. "'Ease the jib, and we'll go in on a broad reach. Skarm, we'll need the lead.' They did not have to be told to keep a sharp lookout as the molly felt her way into the bay. Skarm climbed onto the foredeck to sound the depth of water with a coil of light line, the lead weight at its end, armed with a wad of tallow to sample the bottom. He stood with his injured arm hooked around the starboard stay, a coil of line in his otherwise useless left hand. His right arm swung the weight in a circle, the lead blurred in the air before flying ahead of the boat and splashing into the water. Then, as it dropped to the bottom and the molly moved ahead, Skarm called out the depth when the cord was taut and vertical under his hand. Then he retrieved the line and the lead, checked the tallow for sand, mud, or shells, and then repeated the process. They sailed westward on a slackening breeze into a wide-mouthed bay that was completely unlike the narrow passage between the cliffs that guarded the village. On either side were gentle slopes clad in forest, dark green with spruce, balsam, and pine, all the way down to the high tide-line. Astraea drew a wind-blown pine that rose above the rest, and then, as they sailed further, he made notes and corrections to his sketch of the island that sheltered the inner part of the bay. The molly forged ahead slowly, her sails hanging slack, a V-shaped ripple widening from under her bows. 
As they rounded the island that protected the bay, Estrella saw gentle, soft green hills rolling towards the skyline, where pink clouds veiled the setting sun. One by one, the crew of the Molly took off their waterproof jackets to enjoy being out of the sea wind. Three fathom, two fathom and a half, just over two fathom, sand below, two fathom, and good holding ground. Scarm's soundings measured their slow progress around a point that proved to be a second wooded island, almost connected to the mainland by a line of huge boulders. Apart from the old sailor's voice and the occasional flap of the jib, the molly slid forward in the silence that had descended when they left the sounds of the open ocean behind them. The land sloped towards them in the early evening light. Astrea began his last sketch with the outline of distant hills. When he glanced up, he frowned at rolling fields, grass green with spring growth. Closer, clustered along the shoreline and crowning the first rise of land, were shapes he recognized with a quick, indrawn breath of surprise. Roaring Jack had the same reaction, but louder. "'Sweet spirit of me long-departed mother, these houses!' Roaring Jack's exclamation shattered the silence. Houses, echoed back from them a moment later. Good-sized wharf, too, said Skarm. No need to anchor or beach her, we can just lie alongside. He swung the lid once more. Still firm sand at two fathom, and that's at close to low tide. Estrella's charcoal scraped across a fresh sheet of birch bark, picking up the shapes of houses, the sloping, rock-strewn beach, and a wharf like a wall, between the water and the houses behind it. When he started to draw the wharf, he saw what it was. "'It's a ship!' he exclaimed. "'That chance!' Jan scoffed. "'It's far too big for that!' "'No, look again. It doesn't go straight down into the water. It's a boat's side, bulging, and tapered at the ends.' "'You're right, Straya. Douse the jib, lower the main. Ready to fend off!' Roaring Jack's orders echoed across the still water, this time returning from the wharf that had once been a huge boat. As they drew closer, they saw that the deck of the wharf was more than head-high above them. Quickly stowing his sketch, Estrella prepared to keep the molly from bumping against the black wooden wall. "'That's my job,' muttered Jan. "'Fine,' said Estrella. "'You do the bow.' "'I'm here. You go forward.' "'Get your arse forward, Yan,' said Roaring Jack. "'Red, take a line ashore.' Muttering, Yan started to climb out of the cockpit, but Red Ian was faster. He leaped up from the molly's deck, his big hands grasped the gunwale of the stranded ship, and with something between a vault and a scramble he was above them. Pushing against the dark shape with an oar, Estrella looked up and saw the big man's face crumple into a baffled frown. "'There's nothing in here. Nothing but rocks. "'Ease her aft a bit, Red, so I can climb up.' The molly drifted astern towards a barnacled, weedy ladder and nailed into the dark wood, almost invisible in the lengthening shadows. Roaring Jack climbed with the stern line draped over one shoulder. Estrella looked up at the broad backs of the two men silhouetted above him. Roaring Jack's voice rumbled into the evening. "'Well, I'll be—' "'Are you going to tell us, or do we have to guess?' asked Skarm. 
Come on up and look for yourselves. I could use a hand. Oh, right you are, Skarm. Toss up the end of your lead line. The line flew through the air, Roaring Jack pulled, and Skarm half climbed, half walked up the blackened wood, the lead weight bumping on his hip. Astraea scaled the ladder Roaring Jack had used, Yan close behind him. They all stood on a strip of stained decking. At their feet was a ragged hole, where once there had been the hatch of a hold. To their right were the remains of the deckhouse, one side stove-in and splintered, its roof resting cockeyed on what remained. To their left they saw the stumps of three huge masts, each thicker than Redian's big body. They stuck up like broken trees, one close at hand, another more than a dozen paces away, the third even farther beyond, where a broken cabin top ended and the deck tapered towards the bow. Astraea saw that the ship had been immense. He guessed it was more than five times the length of the molly. He looked down into the hold and saw the sky palely reflected in dark water around huge rocks. As his eyes grew accustomed to the dim light, he saw that the rocks had smashed through at least one deck, portions of which were still visible on either side of the opening. Astraea was right. She's a sunk ship. I saw that before Blackhead opened his big yap, muttered Yen. Then why didn't you say so? Astraea whispered. "'Cause I'm not always sucking up to the skipper, that's why,' said Yan, and stuck out his tongue. "'There must have been a hatch cover that they ripped off to throw in the rocks,' Skarm continued, as he, like Astraea, peered into the hole in the deck. "'I'd never do that to a ship if she was mine,' said Red Ian. Roaring Jack looked beyond the other side of the ship, which met the land at a level with where they stood. Grass and weeds patched an area between the wharf and a line of barns, sheds, and houses, which began a dozen or so paces from the water. The skipper's huge voice broke the evening hush once more. "'Is anyone there?' "'One there,' replied an echo. "'Nobody home,' said Red Ian slowly. "'No smoke. "'No boats, nor any sign of them. "'Not even a dory,' said Skarm. "'Something's really wrong here,' said Astraea. "'The windows of the houses were dark and sightless. "'Doors gaped open. "'What had been washing waved gently on a line, "'but it was so frayed and ragged "'they could hardly distinguish shirts from sheets. "'The ground was even and smooth. "'No footprints marked the weedy pathways "'to and between the houses. "'Astraea shuddered.' Roaring Jack glanced at him and inclined his head thoughtfully. Yan edged round the open hatch to the narrow deck on the other side and stepped over what was left of the gunnels onto the land. "'What's over there?' Skarm asked, pointing with his good arm. "'That's the remains of a fire. A big one,' said Astraea. "'Hey, the doors of the houses are open,' said Yan. "'I'm going to take a look.' "'Stop him, Jack,' said Skarm quietly but with an urgency that Estrella had never heard before. "'Belay that, Yan!' Roaring Jack's order echoed off the empty houses as Yan broke into a trot. "'Stop where you're at!' This time Roaring Jack's voice was so loud that Estrella blinked. Yan continued towards the closest house, 
but before he reached the door a rope curved through the air, and Yan fell with his legs tangled in Skarm's lead-line. "'Beauty,' commented Red Ian softly. Roaring Jack looked questioningly at Skarm. "'Maybe they had the plague. Could be they were trying to burn it out. It ain't safe, for certain sure. And they're all gone, one way or another. Nobody left.' He strode towards Yan, who was trying to disentangle himself from the heaving line. In a few strides the skipper stood over him, and in one smooth motion he lifted Yan by the shirt-front, dangling his feet a handspan above the ground. "'Don't you never, never ignore me again, by—' he growled, his face a finger-length from the source of Roaring Jack's huge voice. Yan's eyes first closed, then opened. Despite himself, tears slid down his cheeks. The rope around his ankles fell free, and Skarm retrieved it, the lead weight bumping over the bare earth. Roaring Jack started back, marching Yan ahead of him, one hand clenched into his shoulder. Then, apparently changing his mind, he walked towards the chest-high, charred pile of blackened wood. Astrea, Skarm, and Red Ian heard Yan whimper, and a moment later, an explosion of sound came from Roaring Jack. Seevin' sculpins! There's bones in there! Human bones! Get back aboard! Where's shovin' off? Right flamin' now! In moments they were all aboard the Molly. Astrea pushed at the black wood with an oar, and the gap between boat and ship widened. The wooden rings on the mainsail clattered against the mast as Red Ian hoisted quickly. The first puff of evening wind off the land scuffed the water into tiny ripples, and the molly's bow swung eastward toward the darkening sea. As he looked back over the stern, a last shaft of sunlight glanced on the water, illuminating the side of the half-sunk ship. Astrea saw a board at the bow, its letters highlighted in weathered white paint. In the instant before a cloud dimmed the setting sun, he was able to read the name, Spindrift. "'Steady, steady,' Roaring Jack's voice was softer now, almost as if he were talking to himself. "'We'll anchor for the night. No point in blundering around in the dark. Good holding ground, you said, Skarm?' Skarm nodded. "'Drop the killick astern, Red. Pay out about ten fathoms as we go. We'll lay the pick ahead, shorten up, and lie between the two of them. The killick was a crude anchor made of fire-hardened wood shaped into a rough cage around a heavy boulder with a cross-piece below. Red Ian tossed it behind them as if it were a toy, and then paid out rope while Skarm waited for the molly to slide a few boats' lengths through the darkened water, and then shoved the forward anchor off the foredeck. Moments after it splashed into the sea, Red Ian started to haul, and gradually the molly lost momentum, coming to rest between her two anchors. As the light faded from the sky, they prepared for the night. They ate a cold and silent supper in the cramped cabin, seated on either side of the narrow table that dangled from four ropes set into the cabin top above them. Yan and Estrella had their backs against the forward bulkhead, the skipper sat on one of the steps to the cockpit, and Skarm and Red Ian faced each other across the table. A lantern swung gently above them.
Yan, suddenly, could not keep silence. You should have seen it. There were bones in the fire, all mixed with beams and logs and what looked like pieces of furniture, and at the edges there were bits of people. I, I saw two, maybe three, skulls, and a hand, or what was left of it, on the edge of the burned wood. Animals, maybe, after the fire was out, said Skarm, pulling bones out of the ashes. No knowing how many bodies. Or how many were left in the houses, muttered Roaring Jack. Could be the ones that lived was trying to burn out the infection, and they were too late. Estrella tried to imagine a grisly procession of people carrying or dragging bodies to the fire site, heaping whatever would burn on top, and then torching the pile before going back to their houses to die themselves. Skipper, why did you think it was a plague? Astrea asked. You know the song, Astrea, said Red Ian slowly, and then he sang in a hoarse whisper. He must sail through storm and calm. His crew has done him harm. He's left the dead ashore, and he must sail forevermore. He's the prisoner of an unforgiven curse. Red Ian's words were half sung, half said, as the lantern light cast shadows across the big sailor's face. Skarm nodded thoughtfully. The wanderer's curse, said Astrea. I've heard the song. But mother, uh, Alana, will never sing it. I can understand that, said Skarm quietly. It's just a song, a tradition. It doesn't say anything about plague, said Yan. Can you think of a stronger curse than that, said Roaring Jack. It was plague, sure enough. Even traditions have a beginning, somewhere, sometime said Skarm softly. Words get snarled up with fate, and then it all repeats itself in a fresh pattern or bad luck. Astrea stared at Skarm, trying to unravel this lapse into speculation. "'You think it's still in the air?' asked Red Ian, voicing the thought that had occurred to all of them. "'Doubt it,' said Roaring Jack. "'We all stayed out of the houses, and we didn't touch nothing.' "'No thanks to you, young Yan,' said Red Ian. Yan bent over the table so that only the top of his head showed in the lamplight. "'Yan, you get first watch with me,' said Roaring Jack. "'On deck. You follow along too, Red, so's we can check how she lies.' Roaring Jack's order jerked Yan to his feet so quickly that he hit his head on the cabin roof. Not even taking time to wince— he scrambled up the short steps of the ladder to the cockpit after the skipper. Astrea tidied the remains of the meal and set out rolled-up blankets on the benches. Red Ian stowed the table and climbed up the companionway, closing the hatch behind him. Skarm moved astern to sit opposite Astrea, the cabin lantern swinging gently above them. Skarm, you know more about this, don't you? Astrea saw Skarm slowly nod. "'You guessed it weren't plague back there.' "'You didn't say it was plague, and it stands to reason that it wasn't,' said Astrea. "'If they'd been trying to burn out the infection, they'd have set fire to the houses, instead of carrying bodies to a fire. And I can't imagine anyone doing that to people they'd lived with, especially if they were family. 
toss a torch into a house, maybe, carry your mother or your brother to the shore and pile the bodies on a fire? Not a chance. Skarm nodded. I didn't want Yan fossicking around. If it wasn't plague, why did you nod when Red sang the Wanderer's Curse? What's that got to do with what we saw? What really happened? Astraea, there are ships doomed to sail forever. I don't know how many there were, or are left, but that was one of them back there, scuttled. Spindrift, said Astraea. You saw her name. She must have come ashore with her crew and founded the village back there. There could have been as many as a couple hundred of them by the looks of it. Families, with children, some of them, I bet. But men came in another ship. They killed and plundered, and they left. It's likely that men of the sea did this, and they did it to their own. Astraea felt his insides clench. He swallowed with a tight throat and whispered, Skarn, was my father a man of the sea? Skarn nodded. That's what he said to me when we fished him out of the sea. Made no sense at the time. I thought he was raving because he was barely alive. When we first saw him, we thought he was dead, and we nearly let him stay with the fishes. But Red Ian said we couldn't just leave a man stuck before we'd discovered if he were alive or dead, so we hauled him out. He was breathing, just, so we brought him home with us. I took him to my cottage. For the first few days he could barely talk, and what he said was like he was dreaming. He told me, that is, I listened while he spoke, because it wasn't like he was explaining to me, more like telling himself who he was. He spoke of being aboard a great ship, one of many. The ships of the men of the sea, he called them. And he'd been a somebody, that was clear. I don't think he'd been the skipper, but he'd been given an important job to do away from his ship. Why didn't they come looking for him? I think maybe he expected them to. But when time went by, and they didn't, he must have decided that his people had left him for dead. And then a bit later, he and your mother wed. But you talked with him. He must have told you all kinds of things. Skarm, you have to tell me. I've said enough. He told me to tell nobody. Skarm, I'm his son. The old sailor's mouth worked as if he were about to begin an explanation, but at that moment the cabin hatch slid back, and Red Ian's feet appeared on the top step. Later, said Skarm, as the big sailor descended into the cabin. He muttered a good night to both of them, and lay down on the bench opposite Astraea, endeavouring to curl himself up so that he did not take all of the space on one side. Soon he was snoring softly. Before Astraea could find words to ask another question, Skarm had adjusted the blankets to soften the bench for his withered arm, and it stretched out opposite Ian. Astraea sat watching the light from the swaying lantern slide up and down the boat's sides, until his eyes started to close. Pulling himself awake, he blew out the lamp, lay down on the cabin sole, took off his jacket and rolled it up as a pillow. As he moved, his shirt-sleeve rose above the bracelet on his arm, and a gleam of green flashed in the dark cabin. "'Keep that stone secret, Astraea,' whispered Skarm from across the narrow cabin. "'It's like you brought it to life. When we found him—' 
It was dull, just like one of those green pebbles he fished out of our stream. Later it gleamed a bit, but nothing like now, and when he gave it to Elana it went dull again. If I don't miss my guess, there's them that would take it away from you, and do you a heap of harm besides. What did my father tell you about the stone? Estrella asked softly. There was no answer save for soft, regular breathing. Estrella looked up into the shadows of the cabin roof, his mind buzzing with unresolved questions. Just as he was expecting to spend the whole night awake and thinking about what he had heard, he suddenly fell asleep. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.